I saw, hi everybody. I saw in the, uh, in the chat as we were doing, um, uh, as we were doing the prayer request, uh, Tanya Rodick asked us uh, to pray for Harold Bickham, who's the, the head of the American Bridge Association. Uh, you might know that uh, the sport, it's a competitive sport of bridge, is very important to the life of uh, to Tanya and also to, to Louise, and they, they're, they're heavily pr- uh, participated in that. Uh, and apparently uh, the head of the American Bridge Association, his wife passed away, uh, Rosemary, and she asked us to, to pray for them, so we're, may God be with them and, and with him. So, um, also wanted to just put a bug in your ear, not that you need any more, because <laughs> of the cicadas, <laughs> they're all over the place. Yeah, too soon. Anyway, um, wanted to put, uh, mention uh, that we are looking to do a baptism uh, this year. We've had a few folks uh, start to show some interest in getting baptized, and that's really exciting. So if that is something that has been on your heart, if that's something that God is working and saying, yeah, I want to make a public proclamation of my faith in Christ and my faith in Jesus, um, then, uh, then yeah, please reach out to me and let's, let's talk about that. That's a bold move. The early church uh, prayed for boldness, uh, and that's something that we're going to look at today. I'd like to invite you to, to turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 4. Uh, boldness is something we, we saw the early church uh, pray for, for themselves. Um, and uh, I, I have a little bit of a story of, of boldness that I'll, that I'll start with today. Um, so uh, one of the dangers of, of, the, of the text today, actually, is, 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 is making it look like you're a little bit more spiritual than you are. So please don't hear me uh, that, that I'm any more you know, holy than I actually am. But I will say I was in this room praying this week, maybe last week, something like that. Um, and I was praying, and, and, I, and of course, there's no, it's a really cool place. If you ever want to come and, and pray here during the week, please do. Give me a call, and we can open up the place for you. It's a very calm and peaceful place. It's usually very cool in here um, you know, during the week. Uh, and um, so, of course, all the lights were off, and I was, I was praying, and I kind of got that part of the prayer where I was like, Lord, just show me the way. Just show, show me what I'm, I'm supposed to do. How should I respond? Um, and I start hearing this car alarm outside. And I was like, well, all right, let's see where this goes. And I like go out and check out this car alarm. And it kept going. I kept like praying, God, show me the way, show me the way. And it was like, like three or four minutes later, this car alarm's still going off. I'm like, all right, let me go check it out. And there was a guy outside who was, who was his car, he was trying to push his car off of, the, off of the Ingleside here onto one of the side streets. And I was like, oh, I'll run over and, and help him out. And I was like, hey, man, can I give you a hand? You know, can I help you get your car off the road? And he's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And I was like, well, okay, I don't want to push, you know, push on it, but um, all right. And uh, anyway, but while I'm standing there talking to him, I start to feel this little, like, creeping in my collar. And I'm like, oh, these cicadas. There, I've had it with them. I am just so done with them. And I reach into my collar, and I pull it out, and I throw it on the ground, and I say, cut it out. Wasn't a cicada. I look on the ground at this squirming little bug, and it was a big, black, scary wasp. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> I, right, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm definitely allergic to, to wasps. Um, and, and so had somebody been behind me and told me, hey, there's a big, scary wasp in going into your shirt, I don't think I would have been as bold about reaching in and saying, cut it out. It was like the Kate, Kate Capshaw moment from, from Temple of Doom. You know. 
Um, but we, we, you know, so ignorance sometimes can help us with boldness, uh, but um, with... Yeah, there's your sermon point. Yeah, right, right, right there. Sometimes what you don't know is actually helping you out. Um, but uh, today uh, is, uh, we, need, we need boldness as we're going into today's passage. Um, and uh, would you please, uh, if you haven't turned there, uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, and they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, he was a Levite, a native of the island of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, and with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And, for, and great fear came upon all those who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for, you know, this price, this so much. And she said, yeah, yeah, for that price. And Peter said, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear fell upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Allow me to make three observations right up front. First of all, this is a strange and difficult passage. I think that the final verse, I think that the final verse that we just read proves that Luke intended it to be read as a strange and difficult story. Great, that when this happened, great fear came upon the church and upon all who heard of these things. So maybe you're out there and you're hearing this story for the first time, or maybe you've heard it before, but you've always kind of just shaken your head at it with disbelief, and when you're reminded of it, you know, it's like, oh gosh, I'd like to forget that that is in the Bible. 
And as daunting as the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira are, there are also other parts of this passage that are also difficult to process. Are we really called to sell everything and contribute to some common fund? Are, are, are we called to follow Barnabas' lead and, and lay everything we have at the apostles' feet? And, and, and what, what happens if we don't? God, God's, God's going to kill us? And what about Peter? Is he really so high and mighty? Just a, just a short time ago, wasn't he the one who lied about even knowing Jesus while Jesus was being tried and crucified? And now he's the one who gets to be, he gets to be the guy that presides over this couple's final moments? This is a strange and difficult story. It, it, it wasn't intended to be an easy pill to swallow. Second, this story is one that should speak to the condition of the human heart. Empowered by the Spirit, the early church lived this life of radical generosity toward one another. In preparing for this sermon, um, I listened to an, an old teaching from Joe Ehrman, who was, uh, he played for the Baltimore Colts for year, years ago, um, and he became, uh, subsequently became a, a powerful preacher. Uh, and preaching on this passage, Joe pointed out that, that most people... They're not taught into the kingdom, they're loved into it. Proclaiming the gospel takes a community of believers who not only know the truth, but whose hearts beat with Christ's heart. We are called to be a community who deal honestly with each other, with integrity, and, and together as a community, what we do is we recover, we uncover, and we discover we recover that knowledge that we are loved by our Heavenly Father and that He desires for us to return to His embrace. We uncover those things that sin, those things, those sins that keep us from living abundant lives. We confess them to one another. And then we discover who we were created to be in the first place. For we were saved by grace through faith for works. I think that this story exposes something of just how seriously God takes the topic of the heart. And that points us to the third observation, that I think this is clearly something that, uh, there's clearly something in this story that stresses the stakes of the game. If you were under the illusion that Jesus' death and resurrection just means sunshine and rainbows and an abstract call to love your neighbor as you are free to define as you see fit, this passage might serve as kind of a wake-up call. These, these things that we talk about, the, the Great Commission, the, the work of the church, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the proclamation of the gospel, these are quite seriously matters of life and death. I cannot begin to understand the depths of the Almighty, and I do not know why, these, why, why, why God did not give them more of an opportunity to repent and why there wasn't a lesson learned. I don't know, but I do think that this story is trying to get our attention. Last week, we talked about the dangers of shortcuts. When Satan tempts us into believing that we really don't need God at the center of our plan, we can do it ourselves, we can kind of put ourselves on the throne. We lie uh, to ourselves that we really don't need his direction, and we certainly don't need his correction. We lie to ourselves and we say, ah, religion. That's just a thing that I do on Sundays. Or faith, that's just a private matter of the heart and it's really not something that I do with others. This story teaches us the true 
religion is done in sacrificial community. And that although faith may be a personal matter of the heart, it was never intended to be private. It was always intended to be exercised in and through community. And this story helps us see that there are consequences for shortcuts. So let's have a look at the story itself. Oftentimes, preachers like to begin the story at the beginning of chapter 5, making the entire tale about Ananias and Sapphira. I do not believe that that is the best way to look at it, to look at the story. First of all, we have a responsibility to look at this story in the context of not only the book of Acts, this two-volume tale that Luke is telling, but also we have the responsibility of seeing it in the context of the entire biblical narrative. I don't think that it's a coincidence that this story appears as the first kind of internal crisis of the church. Thus far, we've seen the church respond to Jesus' commissioning. We've seen them form a, a community around that mission. And we've seen them begin to do some miraculous things in the name of Jesus Christ. When we back the story up and we see it in the context of the end of chapter 4, I think that we can kind of see a, a bigger picture of this episode. We see how it connects to that Acts 2 community that we discussed a few weeks ago. So, beginning in verse 34, chapter 4, chapter 4 chap, ah, sorry, verse 32 of chapter 4, we read that the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, or one heart and mind, or heart and truth. The principle of, of possession, of meaning that, that, that there are things that I have that I possess, these are things that are mine, evidently was something that, that had, they had at least in part abandoned. Some of their resources were sold in order to contribute to the greater good of the community. But even if they kind of still retained official ownership, what we see in verse 32 is a belief that ultimately everything they had belonged to God in the final analysis, and were to be used for the furtherance of the church and the gospel mission. They had been so affected by God's radical grace that the natural response was to live a life of generosity to others. They regarded each other's needs as their own. That's why we do prayer requests in our community, because we regard everybody's needs as our own. And the truth is, this really isn't so far-fetched for us even in America. At New Hope, in our history, we've been so richly blessed by individuals who have opened up their homes to the church, to small groups and prayer gatherings and Christmas parties and baptisms and Bible studies. We have seen men and women step up to this call of radical generosity and opening their homes and opening up their resources to the, to the cause of the church. But that doesn't mean they quit their jobs, right? Their houses and their cars are still in their names. They have stuff, but they see that stuff as gifts to be stewarded, as, as tools to be used for purpose, rather than objects to possess because they're mine. Historical context does matter here as well. The Jerusalem of the day was a city of extremes. There was a great disparity between the wealthy and the poor. And for the church to live into this kind of culture of generosity speaks to just how powerful the gospel was moving in their midst. Hearts were being transformed. Uh, we see this with brilliant clarity in the person of 
Joseph, whom the apostles nicknamed Barnabas. Anytime the Bible changes a name, you want to pay attention to that, right? God's on the move in their lives. Luke tells, that, Luke tells us that the name Barnabas means uh, son of encouragement. We're also told that, that, that Barnabas was a Levite by birth, a native of the island of Cyprus. By the way, Google the island of Cyprus and you'll want to go to there. Um, and that he sold a field that belonged to him in order to give money to the church. Barnabas' actions compel us, right, to ask ourselves, gosh, what am I willing to give up so that others can come to know Jesus? But let's keep a few things in mind about kind of why Luke mentions this in the first place. First of all, it's important that we notice that this, this was supposed to be notable, a rather extravagant example of the principle of generosity. We're not told directly that the field that, that he owned was, was on the island of Cyprus, but, but if we assume that it was, this might give us kind of some idea of why he sold it all. Barnabas is going to come back into the story of Acts repeatedly. Uh, he's actually going to play a, a huge role um, in, the, in the life of Paul. Um, and, the, and the kind of the rise of the Apostle Paul. So I don't think it's a, it's a jump to say that if, if you were willing to devote your, the rest of your life to, to ministry, you, you might not want to be tied down to land that you own on some island. Luke mentions it because it's notable, but also because it was voluntary. He wants to inspire us with a short mention of a man who gave it all up in order to follow where God was leading Barnabas is a powerful example. That's how important the gospel mission was to the early church. We should remember that Luke mentions this as a description of life in those early years, not necessarily a prescription of exactly what faithfulness looks like specifically as we apply it in our context. You know, I am blessed to report to you um, that 15 months into this pandemic, our finances here at the church are good. You've all been very faithful to God's provision, even in the midst of all this uncertainty, and the lights have remained on. I am, I am very grateful. I can honestly say, that, though, that for our context, as a general rule, I do not believe that God is calling many of us to sell our possessions and give to some communal fund. No, I, I think it's good that you have your jobs, that we have our jobs that you have your cars, that you have your homes, that you have your bank accounts. Those are all very good things that you're using them the way that you're using them. The question is, is God sovereign over them? This is all really a case of surrender and identity. I surrender all. When we fail to surrender something to God's sovereignty, though, when we, when we hold this thing back, when we fail to surrender it to God's sovereignty, that thing can begin to define us in very unhealthy ways. When things become our possession rather than God's tool, we will begin to align our identity with those things, with holding on to those things. And then we make choices around these things rather than our relationship with God and our participation in His mission. You see, God wants it all. He wants our treasure. He wants to be sovereign over our bank accounts. But He, he also wants our time and our talent as well. God wants it all. He wants our bank accounts, but he also wants our calendars, and he wants our resumes. 
But you know what I find when I'm faithful to that? It's the funniest thing. I find that as hard as it is to give over some things and surrender some things back to God, I find that when I do that, I typically find that He gives them right back. When I say, God, whatever money I have is yours. Whatever talents you've given me, those are yours to do with as you please. Guide, my, guide me in my ways. At, at the time, as for the time that you've given me, my calendar, uh, I will fill those hours as you see fit, Lord. When I do that, when I surrender those things to God and live my life with open hands, it turns out most of the time he usually gives a lot more back to me than I had in the first place. You know? You got a house? Start opening it up to people. Have people over. Show them hospitality. Make them some food and watch what God is going to do with that. You got a talent? Everybody in this room has a talent, has gifts that God has given them. I'm sure you do. Be intentional about your talents, using it to help others and serve the community and participate in the mission of God. Serve in your community, serve here at the church. When you invest your time, your talent, and your treasure, and you surrender all to the things of God, He is going to do amazing things, not just for them, but for you. When we start holding things back, though, mine, that's when it gets dangerous. And here's the thing about Ananias and Sapphira. Let's say they sold their property for a million bucks. And they go to the apostles and they say, guys, we were so inspired by Barnabas and by what he did. Man, that was incredible. We're not quite there yet, but we want to follow his lead. We, we made a million dollars off of this property. We want to give 50% of it. 50%. We want to invest $500,000 in the church, into the kingdom, and we will make do with half. Every commentary that I read this week on this passage made a point to say that that would have been just fine. That's what Zacchaeus did, right? Luke told us about Zacchaeus just back in his gospel. Zacchaeus, you know, had this interaction with Jesus, and the response was that he gave half. Just like it was, and, and, and it was voluntary for Zacchaeus to do that, just like it was voluntary for Barnabas to sell his island property. Um, it, was, it was voluntary for Ananias to sell his property. I think that's what, that's what Peter's getting at in, in verse 4. The problem is not that not only that he conspired together to keep something from the apostles, um, they, they lied about it when they were called out. See, the problem wasn't that they kept back some of the money. The problem is that they kept back some of the truth. And at, the, at a time when the fellowship of the church was really one heart and soul, we are shown that that, the, that sort of damage to the church's integrity does have Deadly consequences. I, I do think that there is something here, something here of Genesis. There's a, there's a, there's a lesson here that the, 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 the opening chapters of the book of Acts, we see this incredible community like, like in Genesis that, that God had with, with Adam and Eve, with God and humanity dwelling in perfect union. And then a choice was made, a selfish choice was made, and that was disrupted. I don't think that it's a coincidence that the sin of Ananias and Sapphira is a sin that so many in the church have committed again and again and again. And the consequences have been just as lethal. Flip through the pages of, of church history and, and you're going to see it again and again and again. Examples of people, especially men, 
sacrificing their integrity on the altars of fame and fortune and sex and power and money. This is indeed a strange and difficult passage. It shows us the stakes of the game are life and death. But it emphasizes the truth that Christianity, first and foremost, is a pilgrimage of the heart. God wants to know. He's asking you this morning, do I have your heart? Do do I have it all? As we were reading through the story, did you notice how often the word feet were used? At the beginning, we're told that that folks sold their possessions in order to give to the needy, but first they laid their proceeds at the apostles' feet. Like Barnabas, who sold his island property and, and laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet. And Ananias only laid a part of his proceeds at the apostles' feet. And then when Sapphira was questioned, she is told that the feet of those who have buried her husband are at the door ready to carry her out to her own burial. And then she falls at Peter's feet. This is all an image of authority. It's all an image of surrender. It begs us to ask, is there anything in our lives that we're holding back? Is there anything in our lives that we're saying, no, 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 God, not, not this. You can have my Sunday mornings, that's fine. You know, you can have, I'll, I'll sing the songs, I'll, I'll clap, I'll, I'll sit in service, you know, I'll do the Bible studies, I'll, you know, but, but no, not, not that, that you don't have any business with that. No, God, not, not this. But here's the thing, that when we do that, we say mine, and we hide this thing, you know, behind our back, and we, and we come to God and we and worship, and, you know, did you really think God couldn't see it? Like, you know, he's back there too. Did, did you really think that you could stand like, like this in, in the presence of God Almighty? But, but here's, the, here's the thing, because he's looking at us, and he's, he's like, God, look at this. Whatever you have in your hand back there, Whatever, you, whatever you're holding on to and saying mine, I, I died for that too. I died for that too. And this was never about me punishing you. It was always about that thing that you're holding behind your back. It's keeping you from being the person that, that I created you to be. It's weighing you down. It's a burden. God's not upset at sin because he he wants us to to not be naughty and he doesn't want us to have a good time. God doesn't like sin because it hurts the people he loves. Sin hurts people and people are the thing that God just loves the most. He went to the cross to die because sin is so destructive in our lives. So that thing that you're holding on to, he's asking today, let go. Let go. You know, it's, it's funny. I, was, um, I, had a, I had, a, had a prayer meeting about a year ago. This was right before COVID. And, um, you know, it was one of those times where it was just a small group of guys. And we sat down together and we just like, what are your strongholds? What are the things that are holding you back? You know, what are those things that are behind your back? And, and we just had like this two-hour session of confession with each other. And, and of course, it was, you know, it was heavy stuff, but we get to the end of it, and one of the guys in the group you know, looks at us and says, was anybody surprised at anything that was mentioned? Did anybody say something, you go, oh gosh, I didn't see that coming, that you, you know, gosh, I'm like, no, it, it mostly had to do with sex, power, and money. 
It most had to do with trading our integrity, trading our honesty, trading our relationship with God for something that's not God. Like, did you really think you could stand in the presence of God like this? No, but also, I died for that too. It's weighing you down, it's hurting you. And that's what it means, I think. That's one of the reasons why it's so important for us to be a community that is praying for each other, a community that is, that is, that is studying the Word of God around each other, um, that, that is opening up the Bible with each other. I think that, that, that for a married couple, I love men's ministry, I love women's ministry, but like for a married couple specifically, one of the most important things that you can do for your marriage is to open up the Bible together and wrestle with it. And say, I don't understand this. And, and be honest about each other. When you open up a passage like Acts 5, which is a strange and difficult passage. No one's denying that. But, but if we hold something back, we hold ourselves back rather than saying, you know, giving our honest impressions of it, honestly wrestle with it. Honestly open our hands before the Lord and say, God, help us understand how this can affect our marriage, how this can affect my parenting, how this can affect my, my job, and help me be the person that you created me to be. How can this help shape our church? How can this help us to grow as a congregation? How can this help us have a better um, impact on our community? How can it help us be for Catonsville, Baltimore, and beyond? Um, when we are open, when we are honest, when we have integrity with God, He is going to do amazing things. That's why I am just sold out to this concept of the local church. I'm sold out to the community that we have. And, you know, I think that this, this passage does give us, you know, a picture of the stakes of, those ga- of that game. Um, it helps us to remember that, that what we're dealing with is, is nothing short of, of life and death. And Jesus wants us to have abundant life. Let me pray for us. Lord, we long to be people who have great unity, great grace, great power, great care, great outreach to the lost. Lord, please work in our lives to accomplish this mission. But Lord, we also ask that you show us any habits, any habits of deception in our lives, Help us to renounce any lies that are in our heart, lies to each other, lies to ourself, lies to God, especially those lies that make others think that, you know, we're closer to God than we really are. Cleanse us. Cleanse us from dishonesty. Help us to walk in light as you are the light. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray, that we, that we do this work of mission, that we worship. We do it all in the name of Jesus. Because under his name, that's how men, that's how humanity will be saved. Amen.